vocation conjures up a lot of ideas in the American mind, typically around vocational training and vocational schools. But I want to offer an alternative definition, vocation as an individual's career calling. Vocation, seen this way, is the magnetic force that puts our gifts, abilities, and interests to their highest and best use. That doesn't mean vocational calling is necessarily obvious or that we wind up doing exactly what we thought we were going to do. Life throws curveballs and we find ourselves doing jobs that we would never have imagined. Today, I'm joined by writer Andrew Donaldson to discuss his vocational journey and his current work at Ordinary Times Magazine, a journal of law, policy, and culture. Donaldson's particular interests tie together culture, history, food, politics, faith, and the importance of place. Together, we discuss his military career, his recovery from a severe injury, and his process for reevaluating his vocational calling. We discuss the integration of food, culture, and conversation, and how food and faith can help us heal social divisions. We also talk about Donaldson's experiences in Appalachia, including his thoughts on its history, poverty, and trauma, and the region's ongoing crisis of opioid addiction and drug-related deaths. We'll also talk about the history of Waffle House. In the Appalachians, the road often winds and new vistas open unexpectedly, much like my conversation with Andrew. Andrew Donaldson, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Uh, it's my pleasure, sir. I really appreciate your time and uh, you thinking of bringing me on. It's good to talk to you. We've been Twitter buddies for a while. Yeah, we've been Twitter buddies for a while. And I, I'm always on the lookout for people who like are interested in unusual things that they, and seriously interested. They're not just doing it to provoke people, but, um, but are seriously interested in things that other people aren't talking about. And I really find that to be true of your Twitter post and your writing and your uh, podcasts and all the other things that you're engaged with. So uh, thank you for making time. Um, so this podcast um, typically focuses on books that people are writing about ideas around topics of vocation, career, and work. Um, but I've found uh, in the last two years of doing this that one of the things I enjoy most uh, is my initial question, which is, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your journey. Tell me about how you got from where you started to where you are now. And I think what I've gleaned out of your Twitter feed is that there's some pretty uh, important elements to your uh, vocational journey that are implicit rather than explicit. And I want to make them explicit in this podcast and sure. have you talk more about them. So uh, why don't we just start out with the basics? Tell us about you know you as a uh, as a person, as a West Virginian, as uh, you know, um, and and how you got to where you are today from where you started. And I'm particular. I'm always particularly influenced or uh, interested in the influence of people. Yeah. You know the the people who spoke who speak into our lives that help us that help shape our our later journeys. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's my whole journey is just a, it's a, it's a long list of people influencing me. So it starts, like you said, from West Virginia, um, large family, deep, deep roots to West Virginia. My mom's family goes back 
gosh, they, the mountain that they live on to this day, my folks still live there. They've been on that mountain for 200 plus years. They, my mom's descendants go back to almost pre-colonial days. So deep, deep roots, big family, uh, my mom and dad. Uh, so obviously my father, one of my biggest influences. And then, uh, when I, when I was a younger man, I was, uh, very immature and not ready for college. When I went off to college, that didn't go well. Wound up uh, back in my hometown working at Walmart, unloading trucks and stocking shelves. Nothing wrong with that. I was glad for the work. I thought five fifteen an hour was I was rich all of a sudden. But you know, you don't know those things when you're eight, 19 years old. And uh, but decided I needed to make a move and do something different. So I ended up enlisting in the military in uh, 2000. And then that's that's when my world changed out of West Virginia, which is a very unique environment and. Uh, then about a year later, of course, we all know September 11th happened, and then even the military version of what the world was like changed drastically. Uh, wound up overseas uh, pretty quickly after that. And uh, Which branch were you in? I was Air Force. Uh, I was active duty Air Force 2000. I enlisted and then uh, uh, joined the Air Force to get out of West Virginia. They sent me to Arkansas, so lesson learned. Um, sometimes your plans don't work out great, so they sent me to Little Rock, but... Uh, uh, ended up in Germany after 9-11 uh, and doing a lot of work there. And of course, by then we're in Afghanistan doing a lot of those sorts of operations. Um, back to the States, to North Carolina, which started my residency here on and off over the last uh, 15, 16 years. Um, back to Germany, out to Vegas, uh, where I was eventually uh, separated medically. So uh, that was that was another journey of a lot of influences and people. And then... Um, Tried to go back and have a, a civilian career after that, after the military. I couldn't do that job anymore. Was working as a in the transportation field, uh, which I liked and was a background that I had. And I enjoyed transportation logistics a lot. And then got physically where I couldn't do that anymore. Got real sick, went through a period of my life with some real serious health problems. And then while I was rehabbing from that and recovering from that, and they made it pretty implicit, like, hey, that that guy that you were that 12, 13, 14 hour, go, go, go that he's like, that's, that's over for you. You need to, that's not going to happen anymore. So then it's like, well, okay, now what do I do? So at uh, 36 years old, 37 years old, you're like, well, now what do I do? So um, your world gets small when you're rehabbing and you're, you're, you lose your careers and things like that. So I did this really desperate thing. I went and got a Twitter account. I never had a social media account my entire life. A lot of that was because I was in the military. And I am so there. sorry that happened to you. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? For what? In fact, the the first thing I ever read that got any traction and attention, I just I was like, you know what? I'm I'm kind of tired of people just bashing it because if you use this thing right, it was great. It was great for me. It yeah. opened my world up. I got to meet people, and you you've seen how I use my Twitter account. I try to be pretty positive most of the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um it opened the world up for me and come to find out when you put yourself out like that, there's a lot of people like that, that can use that sort of thing. And then that led to writing, writing led to doing some other media stuff. And, and that's the nutshell. So it was ups and downs um, and a lot of people helping along the way. So I want to go back to a couple of points. Uh, sure. your, your family has been on the same mountain for 250 years. Um, would you call yourself part of the, uh, the Scots Irish diaspora in yeah. the United States? Probably. Um, of course, the, my dad's people were Donaldson's. Uh, we're the ALD version. The other half of his family is the ELSON. That's because they stayed Catholic. That's a long story we won't delve into today from 100 some years ago. There was a little bit of a spat. Uh, the Methodists and the Catholics didn't get along after that. But anyway, we're the ALD versions of the Donaldson's. My mom was a foster. 
Okay. Uh, so they were Fosters and Hughes's. And so, yeah, the, definitely that kind of lineage. Um, and they'd been there. My, my dad's people came over 1840s, 1850s, that time frame. Uh, and then there's various things in there over the years, but you could definitely say that we're, we're right in that, uh, the sweet spot of the traditional Appalachian, uh, migration patterns, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Uh, I'll never forget going down to South Carolina a number of years ago for a, um, a meeting. Uh, and I, and I, I wandered into union, South Carolina, where I found a plethora of people with red hair, um, you know, and that is, you know, a product of this Scots-Irish migration, which basically moved to the Appalachian Mountains and then down the spine of the Appalachians and populated that yep. entire region. So much has been written, you know, in the last 20 years about the enduring quality of, um, of the culture that, uh, the culture of Appalachia and the culture of the people who populate it. Um, so, and that seems at least from the outside to be a pretty significant influence on your current work. It is. And my beard's gray now. Um, Not it, too gray. it comes in, yeah, but it comes, my beard actually came in red. My dad was the same way as jet black hair and a little bit of red in the beard. It, so yeah, we, we still have little, little hints of that sort of thing in there. It, it is ingrained and it's that, um, you know, almost a clan. We, we joke about our family being a clan because it's so big. My mom was uh, the, the ninth of 10 kids. Um, my dad's one of five. Uh, so I grew up in a very big family. Uh, so it really is like a clan. And they all, you know, where I grew up, when we moved back up on top of the mountain into my, what was my grandmother's house? Um, this neighbor was an aunt and uncle. This neighbor was an aunt and uncle. And that neighbor was an aunt and uncle. And that's the top of the hill. So it, it really was a clan. So, but those, those sorts of things that, yeah. that tighten it in this, um, obviously you have other things like, you know, what we call mountain music, bluegrass music comes out of the, the kind of those sorts of tradition there, there's little windows into that past that, that lingers still. And a lot of it just comes from the family, the family units, um, that close-knitness. And then of course it's a rugged terrain, which is what you know, the old country was like as well. So they probably felt, I always wondered why the Irish settled in West Virginia until I went to Ireland the first time. And I'm like, oh, after the hellscape of New York City in the 1840s, they yeah. must have thought they died and went home. So then it made mm, sense. Mm, so there's, th mm. those things are all little threads to kind of pull on to, to figure those things out. So I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, yeah. So we're going to get back to that when we get down. We want to talk about um, conservatism and politics in a little bit. Um, and we'll get back to that. Um, the nature of, of that influence on our national life. Um, but I wanted, you, you said that your dad was a big influence. Um, yeah. can, you, can you, and then can you unpack that a little bit? And then sure. who else, who else um, was an influence for you? Uh, my father and my, his father, my grandfather. And if you met the son, you met the father because okay. they, they were, they were a continuation. Um, my grandfather was on my, my paternal father, grandfather, John Bell, was never a rich man, but he was extraordinarily well-respected. Mm. Um, this is a man that had 4,000 some people go through the line at his wake in a town of 2,800 people. Um, just very respected. At his funeral, they could only remember two times in his whole life they could ever remember him raising his voice. Mm. Just that kind of, you know, strong character. He was a, he was a supervisor of the machine shop at Union Alloys Steel Mill for decades and decades ran all kinds of side hustles ran a farm raised kids just a, 
my dad was a school teacher for 35 years. And he was also a bivocational pastor on the side. And to him, those were two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all about, if you talk to my father, I always wondered what my dad would have done in business because he has a brilliant mind for business. He has 95 mm -hmm. cents every dollar ever made. Mm -hmm. Very frugal. But if you ask him about education and stuff, he'll, he'll just look at you and he goes, well, where else can I get weekends, holidays, and summers off, live in the country, make a good living, and I get to serve my community? They came out mm -hmm. of West Virginia in the in the late 60s. Um, Dad graduated in 65, Mom, and a year after. There was a national teacher shortage back then, uh, and they went to school on federal teacher grants, which was kind of a novel idea at the time. My mom went for special education. She was one of the first anywhere to do that sort of thing. Um, and part of that deal was they were going to stay in West Virginia, but that was just fine with them because they were like, we, we want to stay. And this was a time when, you know, the seventies is where it really turned around. Everything started really going downhill. Uh, they wanted to stay and they wanted to serve their community. So when you have a roots like that, where dad was almost getting grandchildren or students he had already had, um, everybody knows my fault. When I go home to this day, I'm, I'm Alan's boy. I'm not Andy or Andrew. Or, oh, you're Alan's boy. You're, oh, you're, you're kin to so-and-so. Oh, you're Rock's nephew. That's who I am when I go home and that's okay. Uh, but those, those things, those things wear into you very, very deeply. And I'm very close to my father. We talk almost every day now. Um, uh, he's 74, doing great, sharp as a tack still. Uh, he wanted me to kind of have more of a classical education. He was a bit, bit of a Greekophile. He uh, uh, actually did sabbaticals in Greece and wanted me to oh, learn wow. Greek and my, you know, my Greek history and that sort of thing. So what did, he teach? what did he teach? What did he teach? Did you say? So, social studies. In, he taught social studies, but really he was a history teacher at heart. Mm -hmm. Had three different degrees from WVU. One of them was curriculum. So one thing he really reveled in, and I always remember him doing this, he'd always get the textbooks in the summer, the new one. He would go in and just redline the crap out of the printed textbooks and send them back and be like, this is what's wrong with this. This is what's wrong with this. This is what's wrong with this. <laughs> Did um, they ever change the textbooks? I don't know. Somebody told them. <laughs> I don't know, but he sure enjoyed it. Uh, he would just sit there and just mark out. He, he's like, man, the next generation's got no chance. Look what they're teaching them, you know, this sort of thing. So, so it sounds like you came from a family of readers. Yeah, very, definitely. In fact, my mom, one of the real stories, kind of tell you the family unit her grandfather lived right beside them her um my great great grandfather and he was a hard-working man but he was a farmer he was illiterate and when my mom was a little girl one of the things that made her want to be a teacher and wanted to work in a special education was when she was a little girl and he was well in his 80s she taught him how to read oh my um, goodness so it's things like that um of course that was in the late 60s he was a product of the last century just kind of hanging on by that point but you know things like that um, you know, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. And those are sequences that uh, build up into, into my story and how I view the world. And, and I think I'm the better for it. Mm, wonderful. Okay. So um, thanks for all that. That's uh, very interesting and helpful uh, framing for the stuff that we want to talk about. So you're in the military um, and uh, you did some time overseas, but not uh, you didn't get deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, I did. You did. did. We did a lot of when I was in Germany, we did a lot of down and back. People people found out now because of what happened recently. But when we went to Afghanistan, everything had to fly in there. So when you you did what I did with the Air Force, that was our job. We did air transportation, air mobility. So mm -hmm. we did all those movements. And a lot of times it was um, we were moving stuff so fast. You just had to go with it, go down do whatever needed to do, come back. We did a lot of that stuff. And then I did two long deployments to Iraq. I was in Iraq, uh, 05, 
uh, and then mo almost all of those seven, I was in Iraq deployed long deployments and then a lot of other TUIs and various things. So, um, but it, it was a good career. Uh, I, I feel blessed to have been able to do those sorts of things. And uh, how many years yeah, were you it was in? Interesting. Uh, just short of 12 when they put me out. So you were there from 2000, 2012. Yeah, I got out to February 2012. Mm. Finally finished up. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a long, that's a pretty long hitch. Did you ever go back to college? I did. Um, I've pretty much taken college nonstop since, oddly enough. I, uh, okay. I went back when I, when I, depending on which version, they either they failed me out or they called dad and told him, don't let him come back after Thanksgiving break. Depends on which version of the story you hear from my freshman year. Um, I did go back. I was working at Walmart and I was going to community college. We had a, what they called the Glenville extension, Glenville state college, which is actually where my parents went for their undergrad for dad went on to WBU, uh, which traditionally was the teacher's college, but they had the Glenville extension in town community college. And I started taking classes again. And I kind of relearned how to love learning. Cause I was never much of a student. I just kind of goofed off and did what I needed to do. Uh, and then once I was in the military, especially once I got kind of settled in the military five, six years into it and was progressing in rank and you needed some education anyway, um, I started taking classes and I took a lot of online classes and I've kind of been taking classes nonstop since with uh, tuition assistance first and then my GI Bill. And I've just, I, I relearned how to learn and I love studying. So I, I did um, continue to learn and that's one of the great benefits of the military is they, they provided that. So I took advantage of it. It was good. So what are, what are your classes? What are you studying? I studied, um, I studied uh, religion originally, believe it or not, mm. which I love. I, I always, I've told people in management classes before, I was like, I'm telling you, I learned more about managing people studying religion than anything mm. else. Cause you learn how people think and how people mm. process stuff. And then I have a, a study, obviously transportation logistics, cause that was my career field. Um, and, uh, now I've, uh, I've been looking at, I'm probably going to try to, since I'm doing this writing thing, I might need to learn how to actually use the English language as my <laughs> editor keeps, my uh, editor and carpenter keeps telling me is like one of these days you really need to learn how to use an apostrophe. So I've, mm, I've, mm, I've been mm, looking at that and, mm. uh, probably going to try to maybe do a creative writing and, uh, and try to hone my craft a little bit. So that's yeah. next for me. Yeah, and I still got some GI Bill left, so we'll probably use it towards that. Super interesting. Uh, I've never thought about how a degree in religion or you know studying theology would be helpful um, in management, but I think you're absolutely right. When you have a bivoc bivocational pastor as a father, and you get to sit in on meetings, and you get to go to hospital rooms at the end of life, and you go to mm -hmm. weddings you i didn't realize it growing up until i became a supervisor man everything i did was something i heard from my dad mm -hmm. like because those those are people skills par excellence to be good at those moments those you know what and it doesn't matter if it's a pastor or priest or a rabbi or whatever th those real intimate human moments your people skills have to be on point it's not just empathy it's not just book knowledge or theology knowledge you you got to connect and you got like that one second that one shot to do it and he was great at it. and i so over can and you... over and over again I, I run to those lessons and hear them over and over again of oh here's how you connect with this person that's really upset or really angry or really crying or yeah, so what were his go-to moves uh, that you picked up he used a lot of humor mm. um he always my dad's very, very almost legendarily level-headed. Um, mm. He doesn't get super emotional. 
I could do it because <laughs> you know, when I was a kid and getting in trouble, I could get him. Uh, he, he, he had the, the quality of that person gets louder. I'm going to get quieter. Mm. Um, and not, not in a weak way, but in a, I'm going to draw you back down to where I'm at. He, he was the one that's, that's like, you got to let them get their first shot in the person mm. that's upset, the person that's got a grievance, just let them air out that first thing, because that's not even what they're really thinking. That's just mm. them trying to process it in real time and people can't deal with it. So you let the blast out. Mm-hmm. then you engage him and then find out what's actually going on. And most of the time he could talk him down or, or resolve the issue or whatever. But it, it's a lot of those little things, you know, one of the big ones was, you know, I do all the food stuff. I got that from day. He, he's like, he's like, it's really hard for him to fight when they're eating. <laughs> he's like, we, we, we have real serious discussions. We always make sure we have a church dinner, make sure we have yeah. a potluck because it's yeah. hard for them to fight when they're eating. Yeah. But it's, there's a lot of wisdom in that too, because when yeah. you're sitting and eating there, you know, you get this togetherness and then you can talk about things. Mm-hmm. So that's all stuff I steal. I just rip it straight off from him and oh. try to make it my own. Your dad sounds fantastic. I, I'd like to like to meet him too. Um, Come up to the hill. We'll make sure you eat good. Uh, okay. <laughs> I probably will. It sounds great. Um, so you also had some unfortunate experiences in the military that turned out to play heavily into your change in vocation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, unbeknownst to me, I had, I had several health issues while I was in the military. And when you have the military mindset, you're just going, Hey, I'll just push through and go, 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 go. I, I started getting really pretty early about Oh five Oh six. I started right before I deployed in Oh five. I really started having some health problems. I was having trouble running and, and I was in great shape, you know, I was mm-hmm. the best shape of my life. And I, I, went on that deployment and I had some trouble while I was on the deployment and I was like, I'll just get through the deployment. And I went, tried to see the doctor and, um, they started trying to diagnose it. And I started where I was actually passing out when I was running and they couldn't mm. figure out what's going on. I'm like, mm. I'm in shape, but like after 10, 12 minutes, I'm, I'm getting light. Like what's wrong. Like I run three miles a day. I'm in shape. What's going on here. So finally they do this test and they're like, well, you got asthma. And I'm like, you don't develop asthma at 25. Mm. That's right. So come to find out what it was. I had reflux so bad. I was asphyxiating it um so so you had actual stuff getting into your lungs yeah yeah Yeah. it was so bad and i went and saw a surgeon he said listen they would want to do the surgery called a fun duplication on you but i'll never do it on you because i don't think you'd survive and i don't think you like it i don't think your body would tolerate it but that's what they're going to want to do well fast forward a couple years i'm in germany i'm still having trouble uh same surgeons at Launchstool now oddly enough so he saw me again he's like i remember you um, and I had an unrelated issue and they ended up having to take my gallbladder out and gallbladder is usually an outpatient or a one night thing. I was in the hospital over a week, mm. um, because my liver shut down and he oh, came no. in and tapped me on the show. He's like, I told you your body doesn't like surgery. This is why I don't want to do this other surgery on you. So, mm. um, fast forward a couple more years when I'm in Vegas now in 09, 010, and I'm non-functional. Um, I'm in the hospital. I'm, I'm in really bad shape. And this new surgeon comes in. Oh yeah, we're going to do this fond duplication surgery. Piece of cake, no problem. And we're like, well, this other guy, but you know, I'm nonverbal. I'm in a wheelchair. Like they, it's like, well, we got to try something. So he did it. Uh, I was, and I had gross complications with that. I was in the hospital multiple weeks. I uh, ended my military career. Uh, I did mm. come back from it more than they thought I would initially, but it, it, it did end my career. Mm. Uh, but I thought that was the end of it and it was just new normal and I'll go work a civilian. Well, what we didn't know was in my civilian career, I started getting really sick again in 2014, 2015, uh, really 
badly sick and it was affecting my mental health too. And it was affecting my work. So I went and saw a surgeon at Duke. Um, thankfully Duke, Duke hospital in North Carolina and the Duke Durham VA are across the street from each other. So mm -hmm. they have the same doctors and one of the world's best GI surgeons just one day a week. And they're like, you got to see this one doctor, uh, Dr. Novick. And he saw me and he immediately figured out what was wrong. He's like that surgery they did in 2010, they should have never done it. And I bet you he didn't do it right. So we'll go in and fix it. Mm. Took about 10 months because it's the VA can't do anything simple. Um, and he said, we got to get you in the VA system because it's the, we got to get you over to do because the VA can't handle this and I need certain tools and whatever. So finally, August of 2016, I have this surgery and it was supposed to be about a two hour surgery, maybe overnight if I have complications. Um, it was seven and a half hours of surgery. Uh, my family said when he came out, he looked like he'd been swimming. To this day, he says he's been a GI surgeon 30 years. He still to this day tells me that's the hardest surgery he's ever had. Mm. Um, mm. Found out that that surgery was so bad. He didn't even know what he was dealing with. Um, they did seven and a half hours. Two days later, they had to go in and do five and a half more hours of surgery. Oh gosh. Trying to fix all the stuff this guy did and repair me. Uh, spent a couple of weeks in the hospital. Uh, in the middle of all that, I ended up having uh, heart problems. Ended up having a pericardial infusion. Mm. Um, they couldn't keep fluid off my heart, wound up on a ventilator, ended up having a cardiac top and nod, chest tubes, all that stuff. So, and then I ended up having a couple, after they fixed all that, I had a pyloroplasty surgery, which I won't detail for yeah. you, but it's, um, kind of an old school surgery, but if they would have done that one originally, we could have skipped all the rest of, it. but oh, all together, I went in in August, uh, the first week of August and I got home, uh, in November from the hospital. So Four, so you had to just all of yeah. this added up to you. You had to completely change gears um, yep. in terms of how you supported yourself. Um, yep. Literally had to walk. I've had the pictures online. You know, I had to learn how to walk again. Um, I had had a TBI while I was in the military, and when I did the ventilator, it brought back a lot of that paralysis stuff. Had to rework all that for the second time, which was fun. Um, and then. And then you start doing the rehab. And then I, I remember Dr. Novick coming in when I was rehabbing one day and I remember him putting his hand on my shoulder like this. And he just, he, he just says, you don't get it yet. And I'm like, what are you talking? He's like, that's, that's over that life's mm. he's like, I know you're working really hard and you're pushing. He's like, that's, that's over. You can't do this anymore. And I still had, you know, a feeding tube. Even when I went home, I still had home health and a feeding tube in and all this other stuff. So it was, it was a life-changing event. It was a physically changing event. You know, I'd lost 70 some pounds. And, so what um, was, uh, I mean, that had to be, you know, there, a lot of grief involved in that. I mean, if you loved what you were doing yeah. um, uh, and had to find something else to do, what was that like in terms of just like making that pivot to this new thing? I mean, um, how long did it take you? Did it feel natural or did it feel like, you know, I'm, I'm really having to push myself into something that I don't no, know, don't a, understand? No, it was a struggle. And the struggle was, and the thing you don't think about was whether it was as an NCO in the military or as a supervisor, you know, I, I had my shift. I had my, you know, 20, 30 guys I'm taking care of every day. That's, that's your, your thing in those relationships. And when that's gone and the not working part is part of it, especially as, you know, men, we kind of, we always put our work as part of our, our ethos of what we are. Um, but what really just killed me was those relationships are gone. And now you're in the house all the time. Right. And that's what led me to social media and the writing is like, 
I was talking to my, my mental health provider because I was really, really struggling. And, and when you're laying flat on your back, you went for months on end, you, you get to start taking stock of other things that have not been dealt with over the years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good and bad, but in the long run, it's healthy. And, and I was like, I got to do something here. And that's what led me to writing. And that's why even in my writing and even in my politics, I, I try to keep it people focused more than mm. issue focused. Mm. Because when, when you lose all the people in your life, that's when really bad stuff starts happening. Um, and you start getting into dark places. And that's one of the reasons I did. And I, I, I don't want to overplay that because I did have my family. My family was very supportive and stuff. But beyond that, you still need, you know, what's going on in the world. I can't wear the uniform anymore. I wasn't working you feel unproductive. You feel like you're not really doing anything for greater society. And I wanted to do something like that. And then that's what led me to the outlet of trying to write and trying to get online and and get back in the arena of ideas a little bit. Wow. Perfect transition. So what are the ideas that you're most interested in? And I'll just kick you off here and say, I know it's about food uh, (laughs) and, and culture. Uh, So talk about, uh, talk about that. Well, when, when you, come off a ventilator and it's about three weeks later and you're trying to figure out what's going on and donald trump's president and the cubs are in the world series you're like what are you people been doing <laughs> um so obviously the culture needs some work you know nah, i'm yeah. joking a little bit it was uh, <laughs> um i get gotta watch every minute of that world series because i was strapped in a bed with chest tubes i was tied to the bed but no the culture and the food stuff the the food stuff was a was a you know, self care for myself. Like if you're going to talk about politics and especially the last few years where it's, it's pretty vicious online and, you know, we're, we're online under our real names. So, you know, you're signing up for a certain amount of mess with that. You got to have something good in there. So it's okay. We can do that. But what about something like food that's universal and brings Mm. people together at the same time? So even if somebody hates my politics, maybe they'll like this steak I'm making or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever the Mm -hmm. case may be. So that's why we went to the food. And then I, I do some long form food writing because food is a great way to deal with issues like history, issues mm. like societal issues. Like if you take something really touchy, um, can you go at it through food? Whereas if I would just title like, hey, let's talk about, you know, poverty and and, and poverty of the African-American community in the South, people, you know, certain people just like, eh. I go like, hey, let's talk about the history of barbecue. Mm. Oh, and now I can go into that kind of sideways because that's part of the tradition of how we got, you know, barbecue, um, whole hog barbecue. I've wrote about before. It's like, well, that's all they had. You got to you got to use everything because, you mm-hmm. know, those sorts of things and using issues that way. And it's just an example um, because food's universal. Everybody's got to eat. And especially somebody like me who had to go months on end where I didn't get to eat at all. Mm, you know, mm. it, it's just, it seems like a good way to get into things. And, and these cultural issues get stickier and stickier online. So I, I like to use food just as a kind of a touch point to make sure we all stay more to some humanity somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Anchored in, in a commonality. I think that's a terrific idea. It reminds me of what you said about your dad. You know, uh, if they're going to be mad about something, let's make sure they're eating, you know, while they're mad. Uh, it, so there is something very disarming about it, even online to look at the pictures of what people are fixing for dinner, what they're, yeah. you know, what they're having for lunch. Uh, you know, and it's just like, Oh yeah, they're just, they're just like me. They, they eat, they probably use the bathroom too. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think that's, 
very, very good way of thinking about how to use that topic positively. Plus you get all those interesting ideas of things you can make. Um, yeah. And you're, you're a big fan of the Waffle House. <laughs> I was a shift worker, so you kind of had to be. You, get, you go hungry. Um, you get off at two in the morning. It's not like there's a lot of options. And, you know, when you're, when, you, when, you're, when you're getting off at two in the morning in Huntington, West Virginia, from working at the, you know, the truck terminal, there, you know, the, you know, there's, there's no roost, Chris, to go to. <laughs> um, no, I love Waffle House. What's wrong with Waffle House, man? You know what you're going to do. I think it's you're great. Get it quick. I can go anywhere in the country and get Waffle House. I know exactly what I'm going to get when I get there. In fact, um, in North Carolina, where we got two across from each other in the same intersection, um, <laughs> Caddy Corner, um, kind of famously. But yeah, it's, you know, and it, that was a perfect example of why I write about food because would you have any idea that the found, one of the two founders of Waffle House was on the Manhattan Project? Mm-hmm. You know, Didn't stuff know like that. that. And and they met, they didn't even mean to get in the food business. The one guy was a real was selling houses because he, he went to law school and hated it and didn't want to do it. So he he was selling real estate for his family real. And this guy's like, hey, I need to buy a house. He ended up buying the house next door to his house. And those are the two guys that became friends. And because he was a short order cook and he couldn't franchise the restaurant he's working at. And he was all mad about it. And he's like, I can do this better than they can. And they buddied up and you know, the rest is history. Those kind of American stories, mm. um, two World War II vets that changed the world because now, you know, 70 years later, I can eat at, you know, the, the Waffle House in Huntington, West Virginia, they probably didn't even know it was on the map, you know, yeah. two in the morning and have all kinds of stories of all the craziness that happens. It's, so did they, die bil- did they die billionaires or multi-millionaires? Uh, multi, multi-millionaires, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, so interesting. very interesting guys. Um, yeah. And just two World War II vets. The other guy was a B-24 pilot. Um, and the other guy was one of the drivers. He drove, um, he drove, they had this special express route from Tennessee out to uh, New Mexico to the, to the Trinity site. And he was the officer that would ride with the truck driver because they weren't allowed to stop. And obviously the stuff they're carrying, you can imagine from, you know, yeah. Oak Ridge down there. So he was the security officer that was detailed to ride in the trucks with him to make sure that nothing nothing happened to him. And they would drive that straight. You can imagine doing that drive in 1943 during wartime. I, yeah. No interstate like highway system. Yeah. No interstate highway system. You're- and they're doing it every couple of weeks. Those are, th- those are the kind of guys that did that. But the whole Waffle House thing actually came from the other guy. Um, he was on his uh, reserve, like junior reserve, kind of what we would call ROTC now, JROTC they were out on a maneuver and they were just cold and hungry. And this guy brought him in a shack and just cooked him some eggs and stuff. And he's like, ah. and it never left his mind for years and years and years. He's like, man, I bet there's a lot of people in the middle of the night just need to eat. And that was the whole, that's why they made the sign. Yeah. Let's, it was a bright light in the night, you know, um, sort of. Story. Yeah. My, my favorite Waffle House story is um, during one of the hurricanes that hit down in Alabama, where there are a lot of Waffle Houses, uh, they the the company was kind of seen as part of the emergency response system for for these communities it was like they were most of them were rigged with generators so they could continue to operate even if the power was down you know continue to make food for first responders and for people who didn't have access you know didn't have any food at home or whatever uh and i just it's such a powerful you know uh to me very powerful example of how uh, 
you know, businesses serve kind of multiple purposes within communities. They aren't just money-making entities. Uh, that's a very important uh-huh. function. They provide employment, but they also just provide this kind of social connection. I wrote about it in the piece I wrote about Waffle House. FEMA actually has a scale on how bad a disaster is based on whether Walmart, the Waffle House is open or not, because mm. they have stages, because they Waffle House has a plan for, they can run without electric, they can run without water, they can run, there's like three or four stages mm. they can run on, and they change their menu, and they even do pricing scaling for emergencies and things like this. Um, so that's how FEMA judges because if the Waffle House is completely closed, then you know it's a total disaster. If yeah. they're running just grit, if they're just running on gas, if they don't have water because they can sell canned drinks and whatever. Um, oddly enough, the only thing they can't fix on their emergency plan is the waffles because the only mm-hmm. thing in the kitchen that runs off electric is the waffle iron. So yeah. the little bit of the irony there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, FEMA actually uses them as a scale, and we we've seen it. Of course, in the Carolinas here, we get you know hurricanes all the time. You see it all the time, and the the waffle houses either don't close or they open first and yeah. it's, it's just kind of one of them great little nuggets of things that people don't realize that you know they if you got an emergency worker and those guys are working 20 hour days and whatever just getting a getting a hot meal is a big deal um in emergency situations yeah uh yeah and completely you know we don't think about it um those of us who don't live in disaster prone areas don't often have that experience um, okay, so let's talk about politics a little bit. Um, and uh, you do all this great work to diffuse sort of the social media uh, explosions that are going on or threatening to go on um, with the food work. But you do have views on politics. Um, sure. And you've talked some about the dynamic between conservatives and what you call ultra conservatives. What, what do you mean when you, when you talk about that? Um, I've kind of got the reputation as being like this moderate guy. And I'm like, well, not really moderate. It's just everybody lost their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I, I've gotten to where I write. I don't even use conservative that much anymore. Because how do you define a term where everybody from, you know, Alex Jones to W is using that term? I, it's, it's amazing to me. But um, most of it for me was okay, there's these sets of principles that we traditionally put under a conservative banner, or at least the nomenclature of conservative. Um, What do we do with that without some of the more crazy stuff that has kind of co-opted the terminology? So most of what I do with politics is, and again, maybe this is because I come from the transportation world. I come from the military world. Uh, Transportation is a very A to B profession. It's just got to get done. It's got to get there by X time or you don't get paid and nobody gets paid. And so I've, I've tried to bring that to my politics a lot and keeping that people focus we were talking about. So when it comes to something like conservatism, it's like, okay, we've got all these words and these terminologies, but what are we going to actually get done? And you get a little bit of a pragmatism to it. And then if you can kind of hang on to the pragmatism part of it, it's, it's like, what is this going to accomplish to try to make things better? Because that's the point. You don't, you want things to be better um, how do you aim that at people? And if you're just bomb throwing, nobody, you're never going to get any kind of uh, um, a meeting or a fair hearing from people about your ideas. And that sounds Pollyannish nowadays of like, oh, well, we can just talk it all out. But, but somebody's got to try to because um, there, there's a whole segment that just moves off of emotion and moves off of trends and moves off of, you know, I'm just not going to be that person. And it's all reactionary stuff. 
And part of it's just me being contrarian and wanting to go against the grain sometimes. But if, if we take those conservative principles of, of well, I was always told conservatism started with personal responsibility. Well, part of personal responsibility is knowing to kind of step back a little bit. It's like, okay, I can hear this out and make a decision and discern it and not just be reactionary all the time. The reactionary mm. stuff, when we talk about the, the fringes or ultra or far right or far left or whatever term, the, what you're really talking about is people that are just going to be automatically reactionary to everything without any real reason or thought put behind it. And that's kind of what I always wanted to avoid that because then you're, you're going to go down some roads you don't want to go down for if you don't kind of keep your own mindset about it. So, so you, do you distinguish between, uh, you, you call it ultra, uh, but is another word for this populism? sort yeah. of populist conservatism versus sure. traditional conservatism and you know populism is nothing new it's just you know america no, of we, course got not. Short, yeah. we got short memories and don't remember in fact i was i was um doing a thing this morning we were talking about the, the history of germany and recent german elections he's like yeah we got this whole populist movement now we got to deal with you know they got it they're doing it right now um it's nothing new under the sun there's always been populism and the problem with populism, of course, is there's a real fine line between populism and a mob. <laughs> so, you know, what does the what does the populace want? And then, of course, as we've seen throughout history, populism is a, is usually you scratch it hard enough, you usually wind up finding a singular identity or a singular figure underneath it, driving it that everybody latches on to which is also not healthy if you're a principled person, you know, personal accountability, like we're just talking about that don't go well with I'm following that guy, good, bad, or indifferent, no matter what, uh, that's incongruent. But a lot of people don't think that way through and they wind up, you know, just going down roads they probably don't want to go down. So you've got this huge family that sits up on top of a mountain uh, yep. and has for 250 years. Um, and so they probably represent a pretty good, um, sample yeah. of you know why people believe what they believe and I, i'm wondering if you've got suggestions about how to how to reach um people who are kind of um deeply immersed in this ultra or populist movement how to engage uh and what, what are the important kind of prerequisites for doing it? Part of it is linguistic. And I don't mean like, I mean, it really is its own language. Um, everything has a language to it. You know, veterans, when we start talking to each other, you know, it instantly when you're talking, there's a language. Academics have a language. Um, pundits definitely have a language I've been learning as I got into my writing career. They, they have their own language. Everybody's got their own language those folks have a language of their own now and it's it's come out in media because you know the mass media doesn't really understand some of the terminology they use but when they talk about things like when they just say government you know we're thinking a set of rules and how that you know government to them is this entity it's this real life thing that's you know can be out to get them or can be for them you know, it's things like that. There's, there's perception issues that you've got to get through. There's a lot of cultural issues. When, when, when I go home, um, you know, it usually takes me a day or two to kind of reacclimate a little bit because I've been gone so long. My accent, you know, I, if I go home for three days, my accent will get stronger. It just mm -hmm. will. Those, those folks, um, they're very attuned to the modern media 
environment where they're just considered outliers or the rubes or whatever you want to call it. And we're West Virginians. So you can bring whatever joke you want. Yeah. I'm all about, yeah. you know, we invented the toothbrush because otherwise it'd be toothbrush and all that stuff. Um, they're very sensitive to that stuff. If you don't come at them with some respect up front. Now, the other problem you got is, is there's always going to be that remnant of people who are just so ate up with the, the garbage that's online that you're just never going to reach them no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I think the first key and what I've tried to do is remember what I was talking about a minute ago is like you let them get their first shot in and then you see mm -hmm. what's under the surface. Mm -hmm. That's what you've got to do. Let them get the grievance out and then see if there's anything under there. Is there, is there somebody who will hear you out? Is there somebody who will explain why they feel that way? Why do they hate the government? Why do they think the government's out to get them? Why do they not like XYZ candidate? If you can't take that first shot and try to get to the base layer, um, you're never going to have a chance for those people. A lot of people don't want to take that extra effort and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and they have their own blame for that. That's not an excuse mm -hmm. for them. They, mm -hmm. you know, the ignorance is no excuse, but that's hard to do. And not a lot of people do that. Yeah. It's just a, this debate among conservatives, uh, I should say among probably ex-Republicans, let's say, um, who really don't want to hear this message of, you know, we have to, we have to be respectful. We have to understand, we have to make more of an effort to understand uh, uh, the, the people who are drawn toward populism and what motivates them, what their concerns are, which I kind of get. I mean, it's like some of it, it just, it's so irrational that it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to respect it uh, in some ways. But um, but I also find, and I, I don't know if this is consistent with your experience, my, my family out in Oregon, uh, you know, they, they uh, you know, they all migrated from West Virginia to Washington State during the, the depression and, and during the war years. Um, almost any approach comes off as condescending. Like you're studying me. I don't like being studied. You know, I, I don't, you know, I gave, I read Hillbilly Elegy. I thought it was a very good book, gave it to my mother and she just hated the book because you just don't talk that way about your family. You do yeah. not ever reveal that dirty laundry. And and it's frankly, it's insulting that you would think of me as a specimen, you know, yep. that you're, that, that needs to be understood. Yeah. And um, we certainly don't want somebody that grew up in our North of Cincinnati explaining it to us, mm. um, which is the real, which was the real sin. And I'll, I'll look, I'll put my hand up. I'm like that too. It's like, you just automatically disqualified from talking about it. And let's not get into JD Vance. Cause I've got a long list of grievances yeah. with him anyway, but it's a good example. Uh, it's a good example. It, it is a family. We talked about it before. People in those circumstances, they have those strong familiar family bonds, even if they're not great families, even if they're dysfunctional families. But you got to understand that's when, when you don't have anything else, that's what you're clinging to. So if you can't respect the one little thing they got, if you can't respect their two copper pennies, you know, don't ask them for the nickel, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, so you had a similar reaction to, to the book, Hillbilly yeah, I hate. And, and to be to be fair, let, let me be fair. I, I was biased from the go. The I the concept to start with was everything you just said. So I, I was my radar was already up to start with with it. Um, and this is not you know, this is not just a couch my words here a little bit here. But you you 
when when you have somebody do that and write about those things and there's and and as much as i don't like it there's valid points in the book it's it's not like he's just making it all up out of whole cloth and, and the personal experience stuff you you know that's that's his personal experience i get all that but what happens is it comes off as well it's just one more outsider doing their drive-by view of what what they need to do for us and to fix us and they'll make their money and they'll go on like a train in the night and it'll be on to the next guy and we've been doing this since you know uh, the the Christmas in Appalachia special was kind of the first of this on TV where they made the spectacle of the, they made sure they put the barefoot kids on the porch and they talked to the, the miners with the worst accent. And he walked down the street, you can go get on YouTube. It, that's what started a lot of the Appalachian stuff that we know today was that Christmas in Appalachia. I think it was a CBS special if I remember right. And then of course, Lyndon Johnson latched onto it because he's a very smart politician and we're going to solve poverty in Appalachia. And that was 60 years ago. Um, it, but it's, they all see J.D. Vance. It's another Christmas in Appalachia. It's another mm. whatever, whatever, whatever. They come in, they look, it's a tourist thing. It's poverty tourism. And then they leave. Mm. And the people that live there are super attuned to people coming and going. Right. Um, and that's why there's, there's now some really good media that has done some really good work of, no, we're West Virginia media. We're putting our state, we're from here. We're here. We're going to cover. And they've, they've made some inroads that way. But that's that's part of the story. You know, they extract the coal, they extract the timber before that, they extract the coal, they've extracted people, we're demographically bleeding to death. We have the largest population per capita of any state. Now they're now they're taking the people. And that's just how those that mindset is for those folks. And the same in Kentucky and other places, not just West Virginia. Yeah. Um, but that's just ingrained. So when you say outsider, it's not just outsider, it's oh, this is somebody that's coming to take something that's ours away from us again and again and again, because it's just part of who you are. It's so interesting because when you're talking, it it, uh, it really, uh, it makes me think about some of the work that I've done in, uh, in my career around urban poverty and yeah. talking with Black families and Black communities. Yes. Same themes of Very you're just another you're just another person that is here for right now uh, and you're going to be gone. And frankly, I'm just going to try to get what I can uh, out of this situation uh, because I know that you're packing up and leaving and they're not wrong. You know, that they, they weren't wrong. I couldn't make, uh, make my life um, doing that. I couldn't commit to it for the rest of my rest of my life that I would be there in that community trying to make a difference. I was, I had a, I had a moment that I could, you know, for eight years that I could put myself into this work. Um, so <clears throat> anyways, it really strikes me that that's uh, yeah. a very common theme. People know when they are an object. Yep. It's uh, a and, universal thing. Yeah. I mean, look at it. Look at it this way. It's the same in poverty, Appalachia. It would be the same if you went to like a, like a, bakersville or victorville california like an outlier area like that central empire it's the same in the inner cities it's the same in afghanistan you go talk to the the outliers and they're like hey you're here like once every three weeks the taliban here's all the time same thing you just said we we know you're going to leave you're just here we're going to get what we can get and then it's going to go back to normal we just did this in afghanistan for 20 years it's the same kind of problem even though yeah. the and we were there for 20 years yeah. you know that's but it's not... the same it's the same principle though the people yeah. knew they're like you're not going to stay 
Yeah. The Russians came and went, the British came and went, you know, yeah. I, when you hear them say those things, all of a sudden you're hearing it like, holy cow, if, if, you know, the Pennsylvanians came and did this, you know, would not feel kind of the same way. And I'm not, I don't want to get into all that, but it's, it's a universal theme of the people group you're dealing with know more about them than you do. And sometimes you got to have a little bit of humility, especially mm -hmm. in politics and be like, yeah, this is, uh, I need to have the humility to just say, I, I don't know as much as they do. Maybe I should listen a little bit more and then modify. Someday I, I'll maybe get you to talk with me about if you were trying to do, do the work of empowerment differently, how would it be done? Um, because I think that that's, uh, that's one of the key sort of problems I think that we have in the way that we organize um, economic development, and social services in America is that we only really have one model for it, yeah. which is we're going to go into your community. We're going to diagnose your problem. We're going to give you a solution. Um, and I just don't, it's not that it hasn't helped. There've been some things that have been right. very helpful, but you know, we've got, we've got a different poverty problem on our hands right now than we've had in the past, yeah. which isn't so much about material poverty as it is about other forms of poverty. So let's talk about the other, the other forms of poverty. Um, you've written a lot about the opioid crisis. Uh, yeah. Tell me, tell me about the opioid crisis in Appalachia, what you think about it. Uh, it's epidemic. It's a crisis. Uh, we're losing a generation of people that we can't afford. Like I told you before, we're demographically bleeding to death. We can't afford to lose the people we're losing. People do not understand. <clears throat> I got to do a podcast with uh, Dr. Keith Humphreys, who I don't know if you're familiar with, but excellent. Mm -hmm. He had just come off testifying and fellow West Virginian. So we kind of connected. Um, people do not realize that somebody with addiction in a small town or in a small area or in a small family that's a bomb with a blast radius that affects everything. It affects families. It affects communities. It affects social services. It affects law enforcement. It affects everything about society from government to children to everything. It's a blast radius that just destroys everything within its grasp mm -hmm. and there's shrapnel from it. Um, it's not just some junkie, you know, the, the stereotype of a junkie laying on the side of the street and people just step over them. That's not what's happening. You're having whole families wiped out and kids going into a CPS system that there's nowhere to place them because they're so overran. They're having to send them out of state now. And they just had to do a big investigation to these homes. They're sending them out of state. They can't even keep track of them all. Mm. Um, a gentleman I grew up with, we played basketball together. He's actually the district judge in Fayette County now. And I, I saw him at a funeral last summer and he was just sitting there shaking his head. He's like, I'll have court cases where I have one parent come up and the next case is the other parent like one right after the other. Mm. He's like, what do I do? Okay. You know, it, it's, it's that level of bad. Um, it, the model, you talked about the social model, the social model has actually made it worse mm. in a lot of ways um, because the social model is whoever comes up, whoever pitches the best idea to the government gets the government money. And then the government money, they figure they're right to check and you go deal with this. That's not going to get it done on, on these types of issues. And the new opioids they're dealing with, the fentanyl, this stuff is deadly. Um, so it's, it's, it's a crisis level that's not ebbing anytime soon. Mm. And not a lot of people are paying attention to it. I try to bring uh, awareness to it. There are some beams of light. There's people trying to do things. They're going to 
more family court models and things where they try to put the whole family unit back together, which I think is kind of the way to go at it. I think I saw a documentary that was in West Virginia on a family court um, where they, I mean, it really is an interesting model. I mean, it's, it's like the judge basically is parenting uh, a lot of people of various ages um, and trying to work with them to get out of the, out of the addiction. it's what do you, how do you incentivize somebody? And the prison system certainly doesn't incentivize anybody right now for any good reason whatsoever. So the idea was, and they, one of the examples, they Huntington's the was where you were. And that's where I was working before I went out of work. I was working Mm. and living in Huntington. So I'm real familiar with that area. Um, Even in Nicholas County where I'm from, uh, they just did this where they did a, I don't think they called it a drug court. They took the families out of the probation system and they tied the probation system with the CPS system. And the deal is if you go through all your steps and you work with the court, you get your children back. Mm. So the goal is actually to get your home visits in order and get your job and you get a job and you get productive in society. And then you come off probation and you get your kids back. And the whole goal is to put the family unit together. Mm-hmm. And the first class, I think, had three or four families. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people. But when you have a hometown like mine, that's twenty eight hundred people or so, five families that's significant yeah that's five, that, four, that's families that's a big deal that's it's the good ex, that's the good explosion right you yes. you get that many families back together and it also has ripple effects um Correct. in the in good ripple effects in the yep. in the community so it can, it can work both ways and it's so bad now it's it's when i wrote about it i'm like i know because i'm writing to a obviously a wider audience than just what i'm like you got to understand this is so bad. We need to take a win where we can get it. Mm. So three, four families, that's a win. Let's celebrate it. And then maybe these other folks will be like, well, maybe I can go get my kids back or maybe I can do X, Y, Mm. or Z or whatever. Last year I was, or a year before, I can't remember now time is almost lacks meaning. Um, uh, But the study came out that, that they, they looked at opioid abuse in coal producing counties in West Virginia. Yep. And what they found was kind of counterintuitive. What they found was, and you know, we, we've, we, in the national narrative, we've, we've connected the opioid crisis to work, no yep. work, people go on drugs. And this study kind of flipped that on its head and said, actually, in the counties where coal is still being produced, that's where you have the highest rates of uh, illegal opioid penetration into the community. Yeah. Um, and the argument uh, was, or that they were trying to make was, look, these coal jobs are really hard on people. You know, they're they, 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 they're being underground and breathing uh, coal dust and backbreaking work and and so their explanation was the jobs are part of the problem, but in a different way than we usually thought, which is we create the injuries that create the demand for the opioids. And then they kind of seep out into the community um, as people who don't have the injuries start using the opioids. Right. What do you make of that? There's something to it. Part of it is, and not to just be you know, basic about it, uh, if you're going to have an illicit drug trade, it's going to go where the money is. So if people aren't working, there ain't no money for an illicit drug trade, uh, you know, yeah. basic. 
the workers themselves, you got to remember, these are sometimes non-traditional family units. So when you have a miner and miners make very good money, even to this day, there, that money's filtering down to other people in the family and they can get their hands on that money and then things happen. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the workers. And remember, there's very few coal miners left now. Mm -hmm. um, there's only about 15,000 coal miners altogether and only about half of them are actually underground miners. So it's a very small is that like, West Virginia or is that? Yeah, just West Virginia. Virginia I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's that's rough numbers. Don't quote me on that, but that's just vaguely. Um, mm. But what you also got to remember is if you're in an underground coal mine, those are very remote areas. You know, we don't have coal. You don't have coal mines in Malibu. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have them in Welsh and you have them in Huff Creek and you have them in, you know, uh, places that you, you don't get to by accident and they pipe in the sunshine is the old joke. Um, so you have remote areas. You have people that are working hard. You have people that, how do I say this gently, that there's not a lot of other things to do. Yeah. All right. Now, when I was a kid, you know, you, you could get into a little bit of trouble, but it was it was pretty innocuous by these standards with these new fentanyl. And and remember now this stuff is being synthetically made locally. There's not these mm. long trails. One thing Dr. Humphreys was explaining is like, you know, you can make this stuff anywhere. There, there, you don't need a drug mule international anymore. They can make it on site. Um, so when you get into a remote area like that, that's part of it. Um, there's a lingering cultural part to it um, because miners know, yeah, the mines are running good now, but this may only last 18 months. This may only last three years. So do they, do they juice it to try to keep going? Yeah, there's some of that too. Uh, yeah. the health, there is no health care in a lot of those areas. They got to mm -hmm. go to other places. So there's a lot of those factors and there's just some generational kind of trauma stuff to it. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Or just that, you know, history weighs on you and yeah. there's some of that part to it. So it's a lot of factors. And when you put those in isolated areas, all those factors, all those things going on. Yeah. You can see, and then you start dumping money in there when the mines are gone. Yeah. You can see where the problem comes from. Yeah. So that's really fascinating. Again, it kind of goes back to this. Uh, it's a theme that I've written on and one that I'm probably going to do some more writing on, which is the, the parallels and experience between, uh, low-income white populations and minority populations, especially Black Americans, who, who started going through this two generations before uh, the people in Appalachia did. Right? Right. They, you know, the problems of drugs sort of in the community, uh, a lot of intergenerational trauma or multi-generational trauma, uh, lack of lack of opportunity in some cases, uh, jobs picking up and moving. I mean, it's, it's the, it's like we're watching the same movie on a different set, Yes, you know? Um, and it, so we know we, we've been down this trail before we kind of know what it's about yet. We treat it as if it's different, you know, it's different this time. It's not different this time. It's the same. There are, there are certain kind of complications that go along with the race issue uh, in terms of poverty, but many of the attributes are almost identical. Um, yeah. So yeah, human nature well, doesn't change. Yeah, it really doesn't. Yeah. Someday we'll have to have a talk about the church because I'd be interested in getting your oh, yeah, thoughts. Uh, yeah. About the role of the church and, and what's happening in the church in Appalachia. Um, we'll have to save that for another time. Let's try to end this on a little bit happier note. Uh, you have a lot of affection for music. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to hear what you like in music, 
uh, and what kinds of music you were listening to this morning or last <laughs> night. Um, uh, and then uh, and and then tell us what what it means to you. Um, last night, my my daughter was sitting at the table and we were doing in rounds and like choral rounds of the uh, J.G. Wentworth jingle um, just for fun. You know, I had, I need a structured settlement and I need cash now. And she did the <laughs> opera part. We were singing that last night. Um, kind of a long running thing with my youngest kid. She always sings radio jingles when she was a baby. She do the O'Reilly jingle and things like that. Uh, no, music's just a huge part. I've got um, I've got daughters, teenage daughters, so. Uh, I can't get away from music if I wanted to. So I've tried to at least influence them a little bit with my really random playlist. I listen to everything. Um, uh, I like my thump thump music, girls call it. I still listen to my, you know, I grew up in the 90s. So there's there's plenty of the rap from that era. And um, I like heavy metal and stuff like that. But I do, I, I have an affinity for roots music, bluegrass music, the, the old stuff. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I, who, I have who are a, your favorite artists in that in those genres oh um there's a lot of traditional guys i could say that folks wouldn't even know who they that's are that's okay um, they, people they, they need to hear that uh people yeah need, you yeah know, um the thing is like in my family when you get together in a group you know we have a sing-along as part of our festivities on the 4th of July, the, the, usually the night, the second or third night before the fourth, this is a week long event. Yeah. All the people that, you know, we'll have a hymn sing one night. Usually we'll try to get somebody that's got a guitar or a fiddle or whatever. Somebody will come and play. It's that sort of a thing. Uh, um, bluegrass music. I, I, and then, you know, the old hymns of course have a special place in your heart, but you can do those sorts of things as a family. And then that, that still bleeds over. And um, my funny thing, my daughter who, uh loves you know modern music she always wants to listen to the pop music but she was watching titanic for the 895 <laughs> but she she absolutely loves nearer my god to thee because that's mm. the they're playing that on the violins which you know the legendary story on the titanic that was the last song they played and it was nearer my god to thee as the ship sank she she ran through everybody be quiet everybody's gotta be quiet during nearer to my god to thee so it's funny how they pick up but I yeah. know that from church, you know, that's right. a hymn from my church and there wasn't any violins involved at all. Cause you know, country churches and have, have you, you heard got this? it on key. It was lucky, but have it's you, funny how those you, things leaned over. Have you heard of this new Netflix flick series called midnight mass? I've, I have, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, yeah. I, I've been watching people talk about it. Yeah. I just like, I fast forward through the horror parts, but it's a very interesting treatment of religion uh, uh, and very respectful treatment of yeah. religion. Um, but the, the final scene uses near my God to thee. Um, and it, it, it's quite beautiful actually. So yeah, it's, it's funny how things like that bleed over into culture. And of course there's, there's things like, uh, um, I had to, I had to go to a fire fire funeral a while back and, you know, amazing grace on the bagpipes. If that doesn't cut through, you, you, yeah. just, you just don't have a yeah. soul, you know, just stuff like that bleeds through culture and it's funny. And then, um, of course, because I'm a West Virginian, it's 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 obligatory. But uh, "Country Roads" is 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 yeah. the song, and my kids have picked up on it now. And uh, you know that's that's a hymn. It's you you play it in church, you play it at football games, play it at weddings. It's the final song at funerals in my family. We always have it on funerals. Uh, did, my, you, my, did you my see Lo Did you see Logan Lucky? No, I didn't. I, I heard Daniel Craig makes an excellent. Um, he he does, but that that it's built around the song "Taking yeah. Home Country Roads." So country anyway. roads, but uh, 
uh, as is Joe Manchin's houseboat name, but we'll <laughs> that. But, um, no, but it's, it's man for, for being written in DC about Maryland. We sure did co-op that song yeah. real good, yeah. good and hard, but, uh, and I wrote about it. It's one of my favorite things I ever wrote because I don't think people knew the whole history of how that all happened, how we co-opted it and took it over, but it's, it's, it's a great song. My, uh, my mom's oldest brother died in 2019. Actually, this was kind of the last big family trip before the pandemic. And uh, his his son had married a, a a wonderful woman from Hong Kong, so I was like, this is this great American moment where you have these two half Chinese uh, grandchildren playing country roads for their dead uncle on the fiddle um, to close out a funeral in Clearwater, Florida. Like, mm. how cool is that? Yeah, it's awesome. You say I and I, I I noticed in some of the things you wrote, you're a handle. Yeah. aficionado what's your what's your favorite handle handle yeah uh, uh obviously i i have great memories of the messiah uh mm. growing up because every christmas they would do that for church uh, my yeah. mom sang my mom's a beautiful singer she was an alt, alto singer mm. alto however you say it i'm not a big choir musical person but she had a beautiful alto voice so when they did things like hallelujah chorus you know she's always in the front row because she was short and she was an alto so i could always yeah. see mom at church and usually she was you know glaring at me to be quiet or something like that so, um <laughs> Give me, giving to, you that wait till we get home look yeah, yeah. I, don't make your dad come down there that sort of thing so uh i'll i'll cop out i know it's it but you know there, there's something about the hallelujah chorus at christmas yeah. it's just pretty cool yeah my favorite's the coronation anthems uh, yeah. if you haven't ever listened to those it's fantastic i um, heard it in in england when i was in london they were oh how was fun was it at the royal muse i think it was Albert? At the royal muse at the horse no at the oh. horse stables um, okay they were doing something and they had the one band there and they played that i thought that was pretty that was a cool experience yeah well uh this has been uh really just an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out um, to do it. Uh, I want to. I want to see if maybe we can get a little snippet of your singing with your daughters to include in this podcast. We don't have to do it right now, but if we could set up a time. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to hear him see that. Sing that jingle. Uh, she uh, she'd probably do it in a hot second, but you'd have to get on TikTok. She wouldn't know anything, but uh, that kind of thing. But, no, yeah, they, uh, they those, those just, are the, just ask her to think about it. Life, yeah. yeah, those yeah. are the, the fun little things. Even to this day, she I call her my baby. She's fourteen now. She's the youngest of the four girls. Um, even to this day, I'll be riding in the car. And I'll just go, "Hey, do O'Reilly." Like when she was three years old in Vegas, she'd, she'd hear the O'Reilly, the O O O O'Reilly, that one. Um, so I'll still do that to her every now and then just to annoy her. So life's good. All right. Yeah. Very good. Well, thanks again, uh, Andrew. And uh, oh, before we go, tell us, tell the listeners, I should say, where they can find sure. you. Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter a lot. I'm kind of legendarily always on Twitter uh, for, for the fire. That's the word for the number for the fire. Uh, I, uh, write, um, I have the privilege of working with really talented contributors at ordinary times. That's where I really got to form uh, a lot of my writing style and they, they've been great to me. It's ordinary-times.com. I've been published a lot of other couple places. Uh, and then, uh, yonder at home over on mediums where all my food stuff. So if you want to read about waffle house and country roads and that sort of thing, you'll find that there. And, uh, 
glad to have you glad to have you and then i have uh, my own podcast heard tell uh you can put in my name or put in heard tell um the way we say it is well we heard tell about this and that's where that comes from uh, <laughs> oh I, we're very is, proud. I'm, I'm very familiar with this phrase yes yeah, yeah but uh we call it the heard tell podcast heard tell yeah. show uh very proud of it got in fact uh, brand new episodes getting ready to come out on on journalism covering missing persons kind of a hot topic just mm. did one on the german election this morning uh, with a journalist who's like, hey, here's a story I had in 2019 about missing people. And all those outlets right there, that outlet, yeah, they turned me down on that missing person. Mm-hmm. So that kind of mm-hmm. fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, very proud of it. Uh, please do check it out. But I appreciate your time, sir. You've been a you've been a great Twitter buddy, a good member of the Twitter Supper Club in good standing. Uh, so uh, you're no Walter Olson, but you do okay. But we can't all live up to so that much. standard. You bet. Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you, sir. You're the best. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.